Good morning. We thank council for your flexibility. Uh, next case is State versus Reber, and we will hear from the appellant. May it please the court. My name is Sherry Lawrence. I'm a special deputy attorney general with the North Carolina Department of Justice, and I represent the state in this case. I would like to reserve five minutes of my time and any remaining time for my, for my initial argument for rebuttal. This case is before the court on Judge Dillon's dissenting opinion on the issue of whether the Court of Appeals erred by determining that the trial court committed reversible error by admitting testimony and closing statements regarding the defendant's prior sexual relationships. This court has appellate jurisdiction to review these issues. The state's notice of appeal tracked Judge Dillon's dissenting opinion, disagreeing with the majority that the trial court committed reversible error. Judge Dillon stated, because I believe that defendant has failed to show reversible error, I respectfully dissent. Judge Dillon disagreed with the majority's finding of reversible error for the testimony in the closing statements. The state's notice of appeal listed, the state's appeal being from Judge Dillon's dissenting opinion, the notice of appeal included review of the issue of determining whether the majority's determination finding reversible error as to the testimony and statements. Reversible error in this case, and based on the dissent, is plain error and gross impropriety, meaning error that requires reversal. First, starting with the text message evidence in this case, and defendant's testimony as to the text messages about his prior sexual behavior. The Court of Appeals improperly reviewed the admission of the text messages between defendant and his ex-girlfriend, Danielle, under Rule 404B. The defendant opened the door to the text message evidence and the parts of the prosecutor's closing statements based on the text messages. After the defendant testified about his sexual relationships with adult women, the prosecutor introduced the evidence during cross-examination to impeach the defendant's credibility. In State v. Albert, this court recognized the open door doctrine by stating that the law wisely permits evidence not otherwise admissible to be offered to explain or rebut evidence elicited by the defendant himself, where one party introduces evidence as to a particular fact or transaction, the other party is entitled to introduce evidence and explanation or rebuttal thereof, even though such latter evidence would be incompetent or irrelevant had it been offered initially. In this case, the defendant sought to introduce evidence of his prior sexual history. He did so through his testimony on direct examination. He testified about his sexual relationships with adult women once he moved to North Carolina, including Danielle. The defendant testified in detail about the location and his practice of sometime not, sometimes not using condoms and using the pull-out method during sexual intercourse. The state properly followed up on defendant's direct examination testimony to explain for the jury and to rebut the defendant's testimony. The state's cross-examination of defendant using the text messages between the defendant and Danielle were properly admitted to explain and to rebut the defendant's testimony. What exactly is it rebutting? If he's asking, if he's offering the testimony to say, I enjoy relationships with adult women, what about that was the, were the text messages rebutting? When defendant offered the testimony as to his prior sexual relationship with women, he was creating an impression before the jury that he had these sexual relationships with women and that he had no need to have a sexual relationship with a prepubescent little girl. For, in this particular, in that scenario, in that same vein, the defendant was saying, hey, I have all of these women, I have all of this opportunity to have sex with women, so why would I want to have sex with a minor child? However, on cross-examination, the state had and was entitled to explain and to rebut that testimony to further explain that that's not really what it was. The text messages showed that the defendant did not have, was not, did not have easy access to the minor children. I mean, easy access to the adult women. So he could not easily have sex because he lived with his grandmother and his grandfather. They did not allow women in the, in the house. So the text messages further showed that him and Danielle went through great lengths to try to meet up at a hotel. However, there were so many different 
obstacles that stood in their way. And because of those obstacles, he was not able to have sex with her on a regular basis or any other woman. What if I don't read his direct testimony to be to the point that he had e easy access to adult women? It was just that he had relationships with adult women. That was his preference. Then, then there's nothing that the text messages are rebutting, right? If, you're, if this court determines not to read those text messages in that manner, um, because defendant did open that door, and I think that's, that false impression is still there before the jury, because he's saying, yes, I have sexual relationships. So it didn't just stop, the question did not stop with, do you have sexual relationships with women? It continued on. Well, do you have sexual relationships with women since you moved to North Carolina? Who are they? Well, Tiffany, the, her, his child's mother, as well as there was some mentioning of Danielle. There was some mention of, well, how do you, do you use a condom or do you not use a condom? Well, I use a condom sometimes, but sometimes I don't. I utilize the pull-out method. So the defendant went beyond just a bare question of, well, do you have prior, do you have any sexual relationships with adult women? He went beyond that. So in light of that, and because he created that additional impression, false impression before the jury that he had these relationships and he... Um, utilize these methods, then the state was entitled to explain that and rebut that testimony. <clears throat> Even if this court determines that the Court of Appeals was correct in finding error, it did not rise to the level of plain error in light of the evidence in this particular case. Um, and moving to that plain error standard, this court is aware of the standard as set out in Odom and Lawrence. The defendant cannot show that absent the alleged error, the jury probably would not have, probably would have reached a different verdict. In fact, the exact op opposite applies. Had the, the defendant's testimony about his prior sexual relationship and condom usage would have still been before the, the jury. He testified during direct examination about those things in great detail, so it wasn't one simple question where he said, yes, I have adult partners. And that's it. That testimony would have still been before the jury. In fact, it was defendant's strategy here. Uh, it was shown throughout the trial <coughs> that that was his strategy to get that testimony out. However, on appeal, he then decides, hey, it's just too much. And that's shown before, that's shown by the fact that he didn't object to this evidence on cross-examination when it came out. In addition, the record shows that his counsel sought to bring in the evidence uh, rather than to exclude it. If you look at the, his counsel's line of questioning throughout the trial, his line of questioning shows that that was his exact purpose to show that he was not interested in minor children, but he was interested in adult women. However, upon further cross-examination that was unchallenged, the state was able to elicit testimony and to actually show that that was not true. And that was indeed a false impression that he created to mislead the jury. In addition to his testimony about his prior sexual relationship and his condom usage that was before the jury, even without the, the challenged testimony, the defendant, there was still testimony that the victim testified about multiple incidents of rape, fellatio, digital penetration, and sexual touching that the defendant committed against her. He admitted to being alone. The defendant himself admitted to being alone with the victim at 3 a.m. in the morning at her house when they went out to spotlight for coyotes. That testimony corroborated the, corroborated the victim's testimony because she also testified that she and the defendant would go outside in the early morning hours to spotlight for coyotes and that sexual acts occurred during that time. The defendant testified further during direct examination that he used the pull-out method with his adult female partners when he did not have a condom available. KW also testified that the defendant did not use the condom during sexual intercourse and that he utilized the, the pull-out method when they had sexual intercourse. Defendant's testimony corroborated KW's testimony. The evidence showed that the, that the defendant and KW, they communicated on Facebook Messenger as well as Snapchat. And the SBI agent testified about, the, uh, about Snapchat and what makes that special. It's a social media platform that does not keep messages. It deletes the messages. 
Um, and the SBI agent was able to testify as to that at trial. In addition, the SBI agent was not able to extract any data from the defendant's cell phone. He wasn't able to extract any data because as of the date that he sought to do so, the defendant's cell phone did not show that all applications had just been loaded to the phone on May 2014. And the defendant had purchased a new phone. That's important because in April of 2015, KW reported the allegations to law enforcement. And defendant, it's reasonable to infer that as of May 5th, 2015, when agent, the agent goes there, the defendant has a new phone and there, there are no apps. There are no messages between him and KW. Why? Because he has that new phone. Considering all of the trial er evidence, there was no plain error here, errors such that the jury probably would have reached a different verdict. And the defendant uh, failed to show that in the Court of Appeals. Well, what about the um, defendant's contention that the issue of the admissibility of the 404B evidence isn't properly before us because uh, Judge Dillon didn't expressly dissent on that ruling? The state's response to that is that Judge Dillon, he noted his disagreement with the majority's opinion on the 404B evidence. While he did not do so explicitly, he stated what they took issue with, and they took issue with the prosecution's cross-examination of the defendant, which was their analysis as to the 404B. But don't we have fairly recent case law that says uh, it's not enough just to note disagreement? Uh, yes, Your Honor, that is correct. Um, however, there was, there, in this particular case, there wasn't a need to engage in a 404B analysis. And I think that's exactly what Judge Dillon says, and that's why he plunges, plunges in and he, he cites the opening the door. Arguably, he does say that as to support his contention that the statements would have been admitted. Well, doesn't he say, essentially, there's no plain error because the requisite prejudice isn't there. Is it dissenting to say arguably X? He, he does hinge his dissent primarily on the plain, plain error. Yes, Your Honor, that is correct. D does he expressly disagree with the majority on the admissibility in, in, in your view? There is not a direct statement in that, in his dissenting opinion as to um, the statements. He, he doesn't say, for example, the majority's wrong. That's correct. And, and under our precedent, he would have to even go beyond that, wouldn't he? He'd have to That's explain correct. why. That's correct. That's correct. But he did disagree with the majority's finding of plain error and that it not, did not rise to the level of plain error. Um, and even assuming arguendo. So I want to ask you about what seemed to be one of the key issues that Judge Dillon was struggling with, which is the kind of the meanings of possibility, possible and probable in kind of ordinary English usage. And I do think this is important because it seems like the Court of Appeals is struggling in some cases to figure out what probable means, you know, when you would say that something probably would have led to a different outcome from a jury, for example. And I guess I want to walk, Serena, I'll probably ask your friend as well, but, you know, if you... In ordinary English usage, if you looked at a case and you said option A is 51% likely and option B is 49% likely, could you say that option A, the 51 to 49, the 51 is probably going to happen? Would, would you say that in ordinary English usage? I mean, and, and if not, where, at what level of likelihood would we start to say in English that's probably going to happen? What do you think about that? Um, not really sure as to, to that, but there is a distinction between the two. Um, and this court has, uh, noted the distinction, uh, and what the, the meaning of plain error is that was reiterated in Lawrence. As to reasonable probability, which would be the applicable standard when, as your honor knows, when the defendant has preserved the error under 15A, 1443. Right, reasonable possibility. Really, reasonable possibility, excuse me. Um, when he has preserved that error, um, the defendant has to show, of course, the court has to find error, 
the court has to also find that the error was prejudicial under 15A1443 such that there is a reasonable possibility that the jury would have reached a different result. Right. And my point is that that wouldn't have to be more likely than not. You know, if in ordinary English usage, we might say a 30% chance of something happening is reasonably possible. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, sure. So Honor. what I'm asking you is what, take me to the opposite end then. Right. In plain air, something's probably going to happen. Where on the sort of spectrum of trying to assign it probable, probabilistically, where, zero to 100, where, where are we in there in I, plain air? I think in terms of plain error and reading the court's decision, this court's decisions in Odom and Lawrence, probability refers to something that is most likely and definitely is going to happen because it's so clear. It's such a fundamental error, as this court noted, um, that a different result would be. The jury would reach a different result, so it probably uh, would result. And in terms of quantification, I guess I'm not really able to quantify that. Um, however, I would think that that's above that 51%. You know, that probably. When this court talked about plain error, it's a high standard. It's a very high standard and is only reserved for um, exceptional circumstances. And I would ask this court to uh, apply Odom, apply Lawrence, and hold the defendant to that, that burden. In the Court of Appeals, the Court of Appeals did not note, uh, they noted, yes, they cited, and defendant does concede, they cited the plain error standard. However, they didn't apply it. They found error and they stopped. I guess what I'm getting at is, I'm sorry, is there a question? I guess what I'm getting is there's a, there's a scenario where, and we've seen this in, in cases in our jurisprudence before, where a single piece of crucial evidence is the state's entire case. And if you remove that piece of evidence, there's really no evidence that, that would allow, and then, so you could certainly say in that sort of case that even if there wasn't a proper evidentiary objection, you can meet the plain error standard, at least the prejudice prong of it, by showing, well, we can certainly say that there'd be, probably be a different outcome here. But we also see many cases like this one where there's so many factors that a jury could use to try to figure out who's telling the truth and who's lying, and you take out any one piece of evidence, it certainly could have an impact, but can we say that this evidence, knowing nothing about what the jury's, that what they're seeing, what they're relying on in, in making these credibility determinations, can we say that any one piece of evidence probably moves that needle? I'm just having a hard time understanding how we would quantify that or how the Court of Appeals quantifies that standard. Your Honor, again, I think this court has to look at all of the evidence in the trial, taking out the challenged evidence. A look at all of the remaining evidence that would remain and based on that evidence is there absent that era or alleged era absent that e evidence would the jury reach the same result is it probable that the jury would reach the same result and taking into account the jury instructions because the jury instructions have not been challenged in this case we presume and this court presumes that the jurors follow those jury instructions uh, there's concern highlighted in the majority opinion as well as by the defendant that the, that the defendant was not convicted on his charges. However, in this particular case, he was because he received those, the jury received those instructions. They instructed, the judge instructed the jury that they had to find him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt for each and every element. In addition, prior to the closing arguments, they, instruct, they were instructed that closing arguments are not evidence and that they should recall the evidence as they recall the evidence. So they put a lot of, I think, safety guards in place here. But, the jury instructions. If I can, I'm over here. <laughs> um, in this case, don't we also, in, in assessing prejudice, don't we also have to take into account how this, um, assuming it was improperly admitted, 404B evidence was used by the prosecutor in closing argument. And, and, the, and the, uh, uh, in particular, the language that the prosecutor used to um, attack the character of this defendant using this evidence that was elicited on cross-examination. 
And if I understand your honor's question correctly, um, that you, this court will have to also take into account that that same evidence was utilized in closing statements. Right. You're, so you're you're you were recounting for us what we should consider as we try to assess whether or not this was plain error Correct. and whether or not the defendant has met that. Um, high burden of showing there would probably be a different outcome. And I'm asking, in, in this particular case, the evidence was not only admitted, but it was also referred to um, it, by the prosecutor in, the, uh, in making their closing argument. Yes, Your Honor. Um, the prosecutor did include them in closing arguments. However, prior, actually in this case, Prior to the closing argument starting, the trial, the jury received those instructions from the trial court. Right, but the jury instructions don't always cure every error. Right? The jury instructions alone don't, don't, don't necessarily mean that there was not prejudice. Well, as to the closing statements, absent the defendant uh, challenging the jury instructions and they're absent any evidence in the record that there's some issue with the jury instructions, uh, we would contend that we presume, and this court presumes, that the jurors followed the trial court's instructions and did not consider that testimony as evidence. In addition, we also presume that the trial court's instructions as to each and every element applying the burden of proof of beyond a reasonable doubt that the jury followed those instructions as well and, and proved and held the state to their burden of proof. So, so then your argument is as long as the jury instructions were correct, there can, no be, can be no showing of prejudice? No, Your Honor. That's part of the, that's part of the entire picture um, under that and standard of plain error and gross impropriety. So the defendant has a burden of showing that. So looking at the entire picture here, taking out the, un, the challenged testimony, we, we have additional evidence. We have the defendant's testimony as to his own sexual relationship. Right. He I, wouldn't... And I guess what I'm suggesting is not only do we have to take out the challenged evidence, but we also have to take out the statements that the prosecutor made about what conclusions the jury should draw from that evidence in closing argument. Yes, Your Honor, and that is part of, I'm, I do apologize, that's part of the challenged statements here. So the challenged evidence as well as the challenged prosecutor statement. And we look at the entire picture. As to the closing statements, the defendant has to show gross impropriety. Right. And I think you, it sounds like you were just conceding something, and I'm not sure that you meant to concede that. So if, if a prosecutor makes a statement at closing argument, let's say in this case the, this evidence was, was not admitted at all. There's no fight about it or anything. It's just not in the uh, evidentiary portion of the case. And then the prosecutor made the same argument in closing argument uh, that's actually in this case, and there was no objection, and a court concluded that it wasn't so grossly improper that the court needed to intervene to responding. Well, then it's just that argument's a part of the case, right? There's no, so don't we here have to treat those two separately because there was no challenge when the, those arguments of closing were made? I mean, that, uh, because if it was permissible, then it doesn't matter whether there was evidence supporting it or not. It was an argument made in closing and there was no objection. It, and that, that is correct, yes, Your Honor. Um, but, and maybe I did misunderstand Justice Earls' question um, as to plain error, plain error applies to the testimony. A gross impropriety is the standard that applies to the closing statements, and the defendant has to show the closing state that his closing state, the prosecutor's closing statements, amounted to the gross impropriety. Right, because it'd be in a totally different scenario. Correct. Right, if the defendant had said, objected at closing, and said, "Your Honor, we, you know, preserving our objection that we don't think this evidence should be in the case, we don't think the prosecutor can discuss it at closing argument." That'd be quite a different scenario then, right? Because you could tie the two together, the, the discussion at closing with the admission of the evidence. Yes, Your Honor. And there are two different standards at play here. So I may have misunderstood Justice Earls' question. Well, I, I don't think you misunderstood my question. I think if the issue is how do we assess whether or not there was prejudice to the defendant in, in the admission of this improper evidence. And you're telling us you look at all the evidence in the case, you, you look at how the jury was instructed, and I'm suggesting that you also look at what the prosecutor said during, um, or, uh, during closing argument. It might be a different, there, I agree it's a different standard to assess whether the statement and closing by itself was grossly improper and, and plain error. Right. But in, when we're assessing whether the evidence was, uh, the admission of that evidence was plain error, it seems to me we have to look at everything, including what was said at closing, closing argument. 
in terms of the plain era standard, yes, we, we do look at the totality. We do look at all of the evidence pulling out that challenge testimony here. And put, as to the- Put another way, didn't the prosecutor in his closing essentially admit an improper 404B reason for the text testimony saying, who is Reber? He's a guy who touches a woman who's drunk. I mean, isn't that the, the kind of character evidence unrelated to the offense charged that 404B prohibits the use of? Well, and I think, again, we're going into talking about the statements. Um, a different standard applies for the statements is gross impropriety. And as for those particular statements, we do take into account the jury instructions. And we do take into account the, how they were instructed as to those statements, I would say as to each part of the trial, the evidence, the testimony, as well as the statements. So we can't look at a one in a vacuum. We, we can't disregard those instructions. And the defendant has not challenged the instructions. The record is devoid of any evidence to suggest otherwise. So this court should presume that the instructions were valid and that the defendant, the trial, the jury followed those instructions. And I see that I'm running out of time, um, but I wanted to just sum up real quick, and we kind of moved into the, the closing arguments issue and the statements. Uh, keeping in mind, the standard is different. It's gross impropriety when the defendant does not object. And based on the prosecutor's, the prosecutor's statements, he, drew, he did draw reasonable inferences from the, the testimony. Now, I think... The court's ruling on this would be contingent on whether or not, um, if this court determines that it was error but not plain error for the actual evidence, then that would definitely change the court's ruling as to the our reasonable inference argument. However, regardless, the jury was instructed properly, and the gross impropriety standard of review, it. It, the defendant has the burden of establishing that, and only an extreme impropriety on the part of the prosecutor will compel this court to hold that the trial judge abused his discretion in not recognizing an intervening ex miramotu in an argument that defense counsel apparently did not believe was prejudicial when it was originally spoken. And that's what we have here. Defendant didn't object. He didn't object at all. He didn't object during cross-examination about his prior sexual history. He didn't object to these closing statements. Why? That was the defense's strategy. That defensive strategy is shown throughout this entire trial. His strategy was to show that he had these prior sexual relationships with adult women, and he had no need to sexually abuse and sexually molest KW. Um, so I think that is an important part of the consideration as well to his exact strategy throughout this time. If there are no further questions, the state will reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, counsel. Here from the FLE. Good morning, Your Honors. Mr. Chief Justice, uh, may it please the court. Uh, my name is Dan Blau. I'm an attorney here in Raleigh at the Blau Law Firm, and as always, it's a pleasure to be before the court this morning to speak with you about Josh Reber. Your Honors, the, the state did the one thing you can't do in a sex offense prosecution. It had a weak case on guilt, and so it bolstered its case by eliciting irrelevant character evidence that I think at this point everyone agrees was not admissible. And the prosecutor then used that evidence to impugn Mr. Reber's character during closing argument in a case that turned really exclusively on the relative credibility of the parties. And the state's coming before the court this morning. Can I stop you right there because this is what I'm struggling with. I, I agree with that statement. So let's do the exercise you're supposed to do in plain error sure. prejudice review. Let's just delete the, um, this you know, alleged 404B evidence, the alleged inadmissible evidence. Just delete it from our minds. Look at this case. Sh tell me why, if we do that, the jury probably would have acquitted your client. Yes, sir, Your Honor, and I think, frankly, the, the discussion that the court just had with the state, I think we're really kind of splitting hairs more than the court needs to here because if ever there was a, a, a case where there's plain error, this is it. I mean, frankly, I think we blow past the, the standard, whether it's 51% or whatever we need to get to. And we know that because this court, um, you know, plain error is not some sort of 
you know, um, unsurmountable standard that a defendant can never meet. This court has found plain error in plenty of cases and has given us a roadmap for exactly what we need to look at to determine whether the defendant has met that burden. In the cases that are cited in the briefs, in the cases that were in the memorandum that I filed with the court a couple days ago, the court sets out really about a dozen different things that we can look at to determine whether this type of credibility type error rises to the level of plain error in a sex offense prosecution. And I'm happy to go through those. And I think, frankly, we don't even need to get past the first two. I'll be long-winded and, and mention all of them. But this court has told us, and this is from the Al-Bayina case and the Jones case. Um, actually, I'm sorry. This is from the Toe case, T-O-W-E, that if the alleged victim is the only witness who provides direct evidence, in other words, the, the only eyewitness, and if the case turns on the relative credibility of the parties, then this court said in tow, that gets you to plain error, and it's an error that's fundamental, that seriously affects the fairness, integrity, and public reputation of judicial proceedings. And we easily meet those to here, it, it's, it's, I don't think anyone would question that the alleged victim was the only one who provided direct evidence of abuse. And in terms of whether the case turned on credibility, if the court looks at the state's new brief before this court, on page 24, the state says, this case primarily relied on the prosecuting witness's credibility. And the dissenting opinion at the Court of Appeals says the same thing, says, I acknowledge the case turned on credibility. So but I'm just looking at those two. Is we're going to, first of all, those cases are hard to square with the standard in Lawrence. And, and I, I think they're much easier to apply when the objections, when, there's, when it's been preserved. Because then, <clears throat> under the reasonable possibility standard, everything you're saying makes sense. Mm -hmm. I'm just concerned with the language in Lawrence. We're going to see the Court of Appeals continue to struggle with this. Because to me, this case is the opposite of what you're saying. Because... It's the word of two different people, KW or the defendant. And to say, well, there was this one piece of evidence that we think might have made the jury uh, believe KW more than your client. So let's remove that. We're still left with just, well, whose word will you believe? It's like a 50-50. So how do you get from that to saying, well, then we can say, though, in that 50-50, the jury probably would have gone with your, your client's testimony and not KW. Well, because I think you have to look at it, as the state said, you have to look at the whole record in the case. And yeah, we're left with kind of a credibility contest, but there were a whole lot of other reasons in this case to, um, to disbelieve the state's evidence and to believe Mr. Reber's denials rather than the, the state's evidence. And as the court notes, if this is a reasonable possibility case, I think we win and we're not even up here, frankly, because Judge Dillon agreed and said, I think there would be a reasonable possibility of, of a different result here. But it's not just he said, she said. There was no corroboration, which is something this court has said in so many cases, no medical evidence, a perfectly normal medical exam despite an alleged three years of repetitive penetrative sex three to four times a week, between Mr. Reber and an eight-year-old girl. Um, there were witnesses who contradicted what the alleged victim said about opportunities for the two parties to have sex when everyone was supposedly at church, but it turns out they weren't. We have the alleged victim saying he had a distinctive mole in his genital area. Well, the state got a non-testimonial identification order and had a detective forced Mr. Reber to disrobe, disrobe. They photographed and inspected his penis and his genital area. They didn't find the mole that the alleged victim has said existed. And then we look, again, more factors the court has considered. There were delays in disclosing the abuse, two years or three years. We know there were reasons for the alleged victim to potentially fabricate the allegations. She testified four times that she had a crush on Mr. Reber and then testified she didn't like the fact that, that he dated adults, that he had girlfriends. 
Um, whether the defendant testified and asserted his innocence. Yes, absolutely he did that here, and he never wavered from that. He never made any statements, either pre-trial or at trial, um, admitting any sort of improper conduct. No one, including the people who were around him in the, in the alleged victim day in and day out for three years, could testify to a single instance of inappropriate conduct between the two of them. And um, finally, and this is something that's critical that the court told us in the Scott case, what is the improper evidence that comes in? And I think this will, Justice Deeds, this will go to some of your concerns, is when we're in a sex case, if the 404B evidence is about sexually inappropriate acts that make the defendant appear to be a sexual deviant, that is a huge problem and is a big factor that can lead this court to conclude that there's plain error because, and these are things that the court needs to consider. It doesn't just come down to a, a, a credibility contest. There's so many other factors, but even if it does, this court has said, look, we're in a sex case. If you put on evidence that the defendant likes to do these various sex things with other people that are somehow out of the ordinary or deviant in some way, it makes it so much more likely, especially when the prosecutor is reinforcing this in closing argument, that the jury is going to view the defendant as a sexual deviant, as someone who's more likely to commit some sort of sexually inappropriate act, even though the two things have absolutely no relation to one another. That's what tilts the scales so hard in favor of the state, is that the 404B evidence is, is deals with the same subject matter generally. You know, it would be one thing if there was evidence that he shoplifted, you know, but that's not what we're talking about here. So we're I'm talking so about something you completely different. I'm glad scales analogy, because this, that, that gets to the heart of what I'm getting at with how right. this standard is supposed to work. Mm -hmm. The argument that you're making, which so many criminal defendants make in these cases, is that some evidence came in that should not have come in, that really tilted the scale for the state. But the question for plain error is you're just imagining that never happened. So what you actually have the burden to show is how the scale is so strongly tilted towards your client that you can say without that, the jury probably would have acquitted. And it's like if you pull that out, we're sort of the scale is somewhat balanced right now. And I'm trying to say how we use the plain error standard to say that meets what the definition of Lauren. Well, Your Honor, I, to, I, I have to respectfully disagree. I don't think, if we pull that out, I don't think the scale is balanced at all. I think the scale is, is firmly tilted towards the side of acquittal because you have and all your the other problems. your argument because there's no corroboration and there's some inconsistencies in KW well, and ignore the inconsistencies in, in your clients that, you know. I don't think there's any inconsistencies in, in my client's testimony. I mean, we have an alleged victim who says he's got a distinctive mole in, in his genital area, and they search his genital area, and there's no mole there. We have an alleged victim who says, yeah, the one time that I stayed the night over at your house, the next morning everyone went to church and we stayed back and had sex. And the grandmother says, no, that's not true. You came with us to church. So did Mr. Reber. What, you know, what are you talking about? This never happened. So when you look at everything, I don't think you can say that when you remove the improper things, the scale just goes to 50-50. I think it swings completely uh, towards a likely acquittal. Now, Your Honor indicated that you possibly felt there were maybe some problems with the plain error analysis in some of the cases that I mentioned recently from this court, and I, I'd like to address that because I am very cognizant of the fact that in cases like the Toe case and in the Warden case, uh, for Warden was 2020, Toe was 2012, this court found plain error, um, but there were uh, justices on the court who did not agree with that assessment and would have found that although there was error, it did not rise to the level of plain error. And I, it, and I want to address the concerns that were raised in some of those dissenting opinions to show how they're not present in this case. In the Toe case, the victim had physical symptoms of abuse, including inflammation and scarring in her, her vaginal area, and the improper statement that came in was kind of one passing statement from the witness that was later explained away or clarified. In the Warden case, it was one inappropriate comment that um, was kind of superfluous, the court says, or the dissent says, and that the jury likely paid little attention to it and it didn't come up at closing arguments. 
I think those are the cases where we don't have plain error, where there, there was clear physical evidence of abuse or there was a passing mention of something improper and it kind of fizzled and, and that was it. Those concerns that the dissenting opinions had in those cases just aren't present here. As I've said, there's clearly no physical evidence of abuse. And, and this is so important, we have a repeated error that comes out multiple times during the state's cross. It comes out when the, when the prosecutor actually introduces the actual text message and emails into evidence. And it comes out in the closing argument when the prosecutor capitalizes on it. Now, the state just said something incorrect, misstated the record. I'm sure it, it wasn't purposeful. But the state said that the defendant never objected to the evidence uh, during the state's cross. Well, that's not true. They didn't object the first time. The second time the prosecutor went down that road, they did object. It was just too late to preserve it. And the judge sustains it. The trial court recognizes this is improper and says to the prosecutor, let's move on to something else. So when we get to the closing argument, and this kind of goes to whether it was grossly improper or not, the prosecutor gets up to deliver his closing argument knowing that the judge has sustained an objection to that evidence already, even though he got it in first and then the second question was sustained. So he should have at that point an idea that that's not something that he should address during closing argument, particularly because there was no reasonable argument that it was admissible under 404B. And so when the prosecutor makes that argument, he's doing it knowing an objection was sustained to that evidence. And he's capitalizing on it by using it for the one purpose, I think as Justice Riggs said, where you cannot use this evidence to tell the jury, who is Josh Reber? Let me tell you who he is. He's the kind of guy who'd get a girl drunk and then touch her breasts and, and she can't remember it. That's who he is. By the way, they then started dating and had a long relationship with each other. But that is the use of the evidence, and I, I, you know, I don't want to argue cumulative error because I think if you look at everything individually, it's bad enough. But when you see how the prosecutor capitalized on it in the one way you can't, I think that really separates this case from cases like Warden and Toe, where you've got a passing reference and it's not really harped on in, in closing argument. We're just dealing with a, with a different set of facts here. So I, I want to go back to a more fundamental question. Yes, sir. Um, is 404B evidence the same as when uh, we use the term uh, that uh, direct examination opened the door? I want to make sure I understand the the court's question. Is so if the is the court's question if the defendant opens the door, is it still 404B evidence? Is that the crux of the court's question? Is there a difference between 404B evidence, evidence that's admitted under 404B, and evidence that is admitted because the other side opened the door? Well, sure. I, I think that if evidence serves one of the legitimate purposes under Rule 404B, it, it comes in and the defendant doesn't need to open the door to it or it's irrelevant if, if he does or doesn't because it comes in anyway. I think that where opening the door becomes uh, relevant is if the evidence was not admissible for a Rule 404B purpose. And so that's kind of where we are in this case. The, whether this was admissible for a 404B purpose, I think, is beyond us at, at this point. The state didn't argue it at trial, didn't argue it at the Court of Appeals, wasn't the basis of the dissent, didn't argue it before this court. Frankly, I, I think the state conceded during its argument in response to Justice Allen's questions that it's the opening the door question was outside the scope of Judge Dillon's dissenting opinion at the Court of Appeals. So I don't think that's really before this court either. I think basically we're left with just plain error now, though I'm happy to address for the court why the defense did not open the door to this and why that is an absolutely incorrect argument that the state's making. So we, we certainly have all of the defendant's testimony on direct examination. Yes. And that included his sexual method, not using a condom. That was on direct. Yes. So we're left with the uh, questions about uh, 
the activities that occurred on uh, the first date with Danielle. Yes. Anything else? Uh, the motel um, uh, conversation about how um, he and his adult girlfriend, Danielle, wanted to be intimate, and they talked about getting a, a motel, and Danielle asks him, well, can you, can you ask your daughter not to tell your grandparents so they don't get mad? And he says, well, I can try, but we don't know. There's no evidence he ever had that conversation with her, but that's something that was um, discussed as well. But that didn't have to do with the text messages. That was in a text message. That was all over. Right. It was there part were, of the were, same exhibits. Right. Yeah. Now, something I, I want to be very clear in response to, to the court's question and just clarify something. Now, what's the state's allegation here? The state's allegation is this guy's a pedophile and that when he's having sex with an eight-year-old, he's not using condoms ever. Okay. Mr. Reber is completely entitled to take the stand in his own defense and rebut that and say, no, I, I'm not attracted to children. I'm attracted to adults. I have adult girlfriends. I have sex with my adult girlfriends and not children. And he's entitled, his testimony wasn't that he didn't use condoms with adult women. His testimony was, usually I do use condoms with my adult girlfriends. If one's not available, I, I don't, but, but usually my habit is to use condoms. He's, he's absolutely able to, to, to say that and directly rebut what the state's allegations are against him. Now, that, though, absolutely does not give the state the ability to use that as an excuse to open up an entirely new line of inquiry that's otherwise not permissible under 404B. This is, this is from cases like Albert, which the state mentioned, and Lynch. If, if the, this court's cases say, like in Hudson, for example, if the defendant talks about something specific, you can explore that specific thing the defendant talks about. In Hudson, the defendant who's on trial for killing his wife testifies on direct for some reason. Oh, yeah, I cheated on her. I, I, had, I had affairs. I was unfaithful. Well, then this court says, yeah, on cross, the state can ask him about his infidelity. He, he brought it up. He testified to the exact same things. Here, Mr. Reber's testifying. He has sex with adults, not kids, and he often uses condoms. The state, to your honor's question, the state is completely within its right, and it would be completely appropriate to explore that on cross. Do you really have adult girlfriends? Are these people who really exist? Are you really attracted to adults instead of children? And do you really use condoms or do you not? And, and what the, as they're doing that, can they talk about uh, if you, you say you're having these relationships, where is that occurring? I mean, that would be appropriate, correct? I mean, yeah, if, I think if, I, if you're saying, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm having sex with somebody and the line of attack is, well, you don't have an opportunity because you can't take her home. Why is that not fair game? Well, I, well, I think that's I think that's probably fair game. But what's not fair game is to then talk about the details of a prior sexual encounter about who was drinking and who took whose breasts out of a shirt and saw them and have sex. That's got nothing to do with anything. That doesn't have anything to do with where it happened or, or anything like that. I mean, consider if if that's fair game. Consider where this is going to go. If in any sense. In any sex offense prosecution, if the state says you're, you're having sex with an underage child and then the defense testified, no, I'm married or, or, or no, I like adults or something like that, this is going to give the state free reign to then inquire into the intimate details of the person's adult sex life to try to find any evidence there that paints the person as some sort of sexual deviant so that the state can then get that information to the jury. This is, this is going to end up happening in every sex offense case. As soon as the defendant testifies either, no, I'm married, which means, of course, he has an adult sexual partner, or, or no, I'm attracted to adults, well, let's get into all your prior sexual experiences. Do you like to do this? Do you like to do that? Do you, do you, you know, well, whatever. Aren't you assuming there were text messages that support the questioning? I'm sorry, Your Honor? Aren't you assuming there were text messages that support the questions. Well, they were introduced into evidence. I mean, the, the, the point is, this was not a fishing expedition. The state knew the answers to the questions that it was asking on cross, and it was just a matter of getting the defendant to agree with what had he knew 
they had in the textbook. Right. Well, whether it's phishing or whether they already know about it, it's still the, the, the evidence still has no relevance at all to what he's on trial for and has no re relevance at all to the things that he was testifying about on, on direct. I mean, if someone's on trial for, for, for raping a child and says, I don't, rape, I don't rape children, I'm married, and, and I have a sexual relationship with my wife or with my adult girlfriend, and the state knows, let's say in the state knows that, because this comes up in the cases sometimes, and the state knows that he owns pornography and enjoys anal sex with his wife. And the state says, well, isn't it true, you know, you have text messages here talking about how you enjoy pornography and having anal sex with your wife or, or girlfriend. These are cases that have come up to the appellate courts, and the, and the courts have said, no, that has nothing at all to do, your, your private adult sex life and what you do with others has nothing to do with whether you have a propensity to have repeated sex three to four times a week over the course of two or three years with an eight-year-old and a deer blind behind the house at a different location. I mean, one thing just has absolutely nothing to do with the other thing, and the trial judge knew that, which is why the trial court sustained the objection when it was made. When the defense eventually objected to it, the trial court recognized this is not proper, this is going to prejudice the case, it's got nothing to do with anything, that objection sustained. Getting low on time, and I, I did want to ask one other thing. Is that these are all about your the footnotes, and it's a well you have a well written brief, and you've got you put footnotes in there about issues that I've been struggling with. I want to ask you so that the other footnote that you had discussed the um, the sort of intersection between plain error and ineffective assistance. I mean, as you pointed out, the state was making arguments about why there might be strategic reasons here not to object, and that really is irrelevant to plain error. But the question I have for you is. We do have that third prong that we've talked about some, the Court of Appeals talks about all the time in the Lawrence test, the one about, uh, you know, does this call into question the integrity of the justice system and that sort of thing. Right. And my question is, is that, is the reason that that provision, that factor is in the test because we know that every plain error case will also be an ineffective assistance case. I mean, because they're all instructional evidentiary errors. And if that's the case, if there was a strategic reason not to object, you could argue, well, that's certainly, we're not, that's not gonna call into question the legitimacy of the justice system if there's a reason that your own lawyer would say, I don't wanna say anything here. So I'm, I'm wondering if sort of the mine run plain error case is actually supposed to be an ineffective assistance case and plain error is supposed to be for cases sort of so shocking to the conscience about what happened that we say, we can't allow as a court system for this judgment to stand. But if it's one where your lawyer should have objected, if your lawyer would have objected, you would have won, we'll say, do an MAR and win that on ineffective assistance. Why shouldn't we have that dichotomy? Well, well a couple things, Your Honor. I mean, first, what I'll tell you is the court's going to create a lot of post-conviction litigation. Um, talk about opening the floodgates for, for post-conviction claims, and then they're going to come up on appeal and then be right back before this court anyway, when this court already has the record to be able to, you know, decide that. I think it's, I think it's, um, ironic that a little off topic, but you know, usually when a defense, when the defendant raises some sort of IAC claim on on direct appeal, the state says, "Oh, we we don't know. We can't tell if it was a strategic decision. Not enough evidence or anything like that." And says, "You can't deal with this here." But all of a sudden, in this case, well, we can we can somehow discern exactly what counsel's you know strategies were, and I think that's just um, not correct. I think that. Um, when, you know, because the Lawrence um, framing of the test includes that last clause, I, I, I think it's fair to say that it has to mean something, right, beyond just the probable impact. And I can, and I can tell the court how I interpret it and some of the things that I look at. Um, is the error one that our appellate courts have said over and over and over again for decades that you can't do, and this is a particularly dangerous type of error because we're talking about 404B evidence about sex in a sex prosecution. Dozens of cases from, from, from the, the State Court of Appeals in, in, in this court that talk about that. If you're dealing with an error that's happening over and over and over again that any prosecutor or defense lawyer or, or trial court in the state knows shouldn't happen, 
that makes it really a fundamental error. And that's something that this court has said. I was talking in the plain error test about if you've got these two things, she's the only uh, eyewitness and then it turns on credibility, that's a fundamental error that, that impacts the, you know, the reputation of the justice system. And as I said in my brief, I think that it does a disservice to the reputation of our justice system in this state when these errors happen and courts say, it's okay. We're, we're going to let it slide here. I think it greatly enhances the reputation of our criminal justice system when this court or the Court of Appeals says, no, we've told you over and over again you can't do this, and you then use this evidence for the, I mean, not disputed, the, the, you could not have scripted a, a better 404B violation if you tried. The one reason you can't use this evidence, that's exactly how you used it, and you used it in closing argument. If we want to uphold the reputation and integrity of, of the trial court system, it's by sending this case back for a new uh, trial counselor. and recognizing... Um, in your um, remaining moments, I apologize for being late with the question, but I do share Justice Dietz's concern and his and, and the dichotomy. Uh, I'm struggling on several levels. One with discerning whether this might have been strategy, um, and I find it interesting that uh, when there was no objection to language like. Um, uh, with other women in this community with no protection, I'm quoting from uh, from the uh, closing argument of the state, you think about an eight or nine-year-old poking around with herpes or gonorrhea or syphilis or AIDS. It's hard for me. I I'm just struggling with the fact that the uh, defense attorney did not object um, why that person did not see it as prejudicial um, and perhaps part of their strategy, I'm just completely baffled by the by the lack of objection at that point. Well, Your Honor, I, I think the the the, the um, way to answer the court's question is that something that, that the court has considered before. If there's something that comes up in closing that's objectionable, why was it not objected to? And if you look at this court's decision in the Jones case, um, this court said. A trial court has to carefully monitor a prosecutor's argument because opposing counsel will be reluctant to interrupt the other attorney for fear of incurring jury disfavor. But and so this also, Counselor, uh, Justice Morgan wrote something in, in rebuttal to that, not, not specifically in that case. It's rare to hold plain error when an attorney did not think prejudicial to require a judge to intervene. Um, and so... I appreciate your comment, but I, I do struggle, and I do struggle uh, partially based on what Justice Dietz is talking about. Well, I just, I, I don't, it's, it's hard for me to argue when, I, when I've got to um, try to have it both ways, where the court has said, we understand why you wouldn't object, and then in other cases, the court says, we want you to object. It, it, so it, it's, it's difficult to answer that question. Um, all I can say is, as a trial lawyer, I, I, I I mean, I'm going. I know what it's like to have to interrupt an adversary during closing argument, and it's it's you know it's a it makes you nervous to do it, even if something is said that you think is improper. And but regardless, the question ultimately is whether the trial court should have done it, you know, itself. And you've got a situation where the court's already sustained an objection to it. So I think that's enough for the court to know. Your honors, I, my time is expiring. I'll conclude by saying. It was not fair how this trial played out. We can't have a reasonable measure of confidence in the outcome, but ultimately the question for this court is whether the Court of Appeals committed any error of law in its decision. It did not. It engaged with the issues, Thank cited you, the counsel. correct standards, asked you to uphold the Court of Appeals. Thank you. Rebuttal. Why are we talking about this evidence? Why are we talking about the defendant's prior sexual history? Why? Because the defendant brought it up. He brought it up on direct examination. The state then explained it on cross-examination. There was no objections. However, now we're on appeal in this era. The defendant can't open and close the door. It was the defense's strategy to put this evidence before the jury. That strategy is shown throughout the record. No objections throughout. So, so is it your argument then that Anything about his sexual history was fair game? That, in, in other words, are there any limits to how far the door gets opened? Because I thought you initially told us that it's opened insofar as the state can offer 
um, test or can cross-examination um, relating to an ex explanation or rebuttal thereof? That is correct. Right. And, and in this case, that's what the state did. The state explained the defendants. The state, the defendant opened the door, so and the state had to explain, and the state was entitled to explain the testimony that the defendant did not have the opportunity or a place to have sex with these adult women that he claimed he did on direct examination. So, yes, under the case law, that's what this court has stated, and that that is what happened in this particular case. So as to 404B and opening the door, they're not the same thing. Um, this testimony was not admitted by the state. The state didn't come up and say, hey, let me just get this in. No, the defendant opened that door, which goes back to why we are here. The defendant's opened the door. He opened the door, and he's trying to close it now. As to the standard plain error, we consider everything. This is not plain error. It's not a one-size-fit-all. You consider the defendant... The defendant's testimony that is still before the jury as to the prior sexual relationship, the minor victim's testimony, as well as the, his admissions that he made, the fact that he got a new cell phone. He got a new cell phone right after these allegations was made. That is very important. He admitted to communicating with her on Facebook. Um, he talks about the medical evidence. There's no requirement that there is medical evidence and has to be medical evidence here. Expert Brown testified, in fact, in most child safety uh, child sex abuse cases, there's not medical evidence. And that's found in the Court of Appeals opinion, and it's found in the facts of the state's brief as well. Um, so we would ask you to consider all of these things and find that the Court of Appeals erred in finding plain error and gross impropriety. Thank you, counsel.